And Lord, I'm grateful for the Holy Scriptures. I'm so grateful for the way you respond when we repent. Lord, I ask that you'd help me as I preach now and for each one of us, Lord, to have the hope that we need in Christ our King, in whose name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm not sure if there's a southern variation of the northern thing or if it's the same among all kids, but as someone growing up in the north in Pennsylvania, as kids playing a game, if something went wrong on a certain play, you could shout, do over. Is that a southern thing as well? And that meant stop, reset the thing, let's play that play over again. Something goes wrong, a do-over, a restart. I want to talk about restarts today because that's where we are in Exodus. Um, as, as we were singing this morning, just even now in that song, I was thinking about every musician's worst nightmare, and that is you mess up the song, somebody's in the wrong key, you start on the wrong verse, and then the song has to stop. There's no way to keep going, and you go, wait. And I have a recording somewhere of Paul McCartney, Sir Paul McCartney, doing one of his great songs, and he starts right out into it in the second verse. And the whole band is messed up. And then he finally goes, I know, I know, I know. I've gotten it wrong, haven't I? And he says, it's, I, won't, I won't do any more English accents. He says, he says, it's such an informal setting, we'll just simply start over. Paul McCartney called a do-over and then did the song perfectly the second time through. Now, I talk about that because where we are in Exodus is a do-over kind of moment. And we're people that need those do-overs all the time. And repentance is central to it. So that's where, I'm, that's where I'm headed this morning as we look at the very end of Exodus. We finally made it. We've, if you've been tracking with us, we've been in Exodus all fall, coming to this moment. This is the last day of the Christian calendar, Christ the King Sunday, and we're at the last part of Exodus. We're in Exodus chapter 40, um, but you've got to recall some things about Exodus. If you go all the way back to the teaching night that Curtis and I did, and then the first sermon, I made the point that Exodus is primarily about worship. The whole flow was rescue from Egypt and slavery, get on to Mount Sinai and get the, com- the covenant, and then the tabernacle for worship. It wasn't God is just going to set you free from a tyrant that is making you a slave and you do whatever you want. It was going from one type of lordship to another type of lordship. You serve the awful Pharaoh who abuses you, or you serve the Lord who loves you. But you're a slave to both, but one is a great Lord. And so, They were rescued out to worship and serve the good and true king of kings. So it was about worship, and God rescues so that we can serve him. Now, in chapter 40, they've completed the tabernacle, and this section is really about divine forgiveness. It's about God forgiving a people who have gone apostate, whole-scale apostate. And these are, this is however many, a million Israelites who have seen God's glory in amazing ways. All the things, signs and wonders that that God did in front of Pharaoh, the Red Sea, the manna from heaven, the quail in the camp, the water from the rock, his pillar of cloud, fire, all this kind of stuff. And then last week, we saw that in merely 40 days of Moses up on the mountain, their anxiety crept up, and they made Aaron forge a golden calf, and they worshiped this golden calf. And they put on all kinds of ornaments like they had done back in Egypt, and they had revelry of the worst kind, worshiping false gods on the foothills of Mount Sinai. And the question now is, will God still dwell with them? 
This level of apostasy raises that question. Will God abandon them and move on? And what we learned last week is that you and I, as humans, are primarily worshipers. There's a book called You Are What You Love by James K.A. Smith, a philosophy professor at Calvin College. It's a good read, and he makes the point in there that you are not primarily, nor am I, a thinking thing. He calls it thinking thingism. It's where we're brains on sticks. The idea is, with no apologies to Descartes, I think, therefore I am, that is just totally not true. Your best thinking gets you into trouble. You are a creature of habit. And the idea of you are what you love is that you are primarily a worshiper, not a thinker. And you worship what you love, and you might love what you don't think. And so the question is, what do you love? And we learned last week that the people fall into idolatry, even though in their minds they know that the Lord that rescued them is God, but they're creatures of habit like you and I. We are worshipers, and what do we worship? We are idolatrous. We can worship anything. We, wor- we have to worship. There's not a choice of worship or not. It's what is the question. And we found out that the people in 40 days of Moses on the mountain worshiped in an idolatrous way. And then an interesting thing happens. See, people want God and they need God, but then we're afraid of him because of judgment. It's not uncommon for someone who hasn't been to church before or in a long time to make a somewhat dismissive statement. Maybe you've done this. When you return, you might not want to sit by me because that's where the lightning bolt's going to hit, and they like nervously chuckle. But they're, they're really kind of uneasy about it. They know that they need God, and yet they know that there's a judgment issue. There's a, a need for a do-over. There's a sinful problem, an idolatry problem, and will God still accept me if I repent and return is the question. Will God forgive me? That's the question being asked here. Now, when the Israelites worship the golden calf and the whole thing goes down, Moses steps in as an intercessor here. You, you, once again, I'm preaching on like five chapters of Exodus, even though we read like five verses, and there's no other way to do it. If we went line by line, it, it wouldn't work. But back in chapter 33, right after the golden calf thing, Moses' intercession happens because God says this, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this disastrous word, I love that word, disastrous, oh no, this is disaster, and it totally is, they mourned, and none of them put on their ornaments. And those were the costumes they were wearing for their idolatrous worship, the things they had learned and picked up in Egypt. They stripped those ornaments off, and they went, this is disastrous. We don't want the promised land if it doesn't come with the promiser himself. Don't just send an angel up to wipe out the inhabitants and give us their land. We want God in the midst of it. That's the whole point. We don't need the land. We need the land with God in it because he is what we ultimately need. Don't do it. And so, Moses has like a temporary tent outside of the camp. It's not the tabernacle. It's this temporary tent where he, when he wants to meet with God, he goes out to this other tent, and then he waits there, and then God's cloud comes, it says. This is in, um, uh, I'm in chapter 33, verse 9. It says, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. So Moses would go into this auxiliary tent, and the cloud would come down and stop at the entrance, and then God and Moses would talk. 
So Moses here is now interceding for this people who've gone apostate. They have, have fallen into sin, and, and God is going to send them without his presence into the land. And then he says to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that we have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? We're just like everybody else unless God is in our midst. So we need you. Moses intercedes, and the Lord agrees with this. Okay, I will go with you. But that's the question is, how is God going to respond? And interestingly enough, Moses then says, show me your glory. And so, a bold request, right? I mean, it's not quite prove it, but we need you. I I want to see you. It's not about a land flowing with milk and honey. Show me your glory. That is ultimately the thing that our worshipful hearts want, all of us. We want to see God's glory. We want to dwell in the midst of it. We want to be nourished by that. We want the glow of it. We want the fulfillment of it. That's what we were made for, God's glory. And so the Lord says, okay, I'm going I'm to pass by. You're going to get to see the backside of my glory because you can't handle the full-on thing. It will, it will destroy you. And as he passes through, he says his name, the Lord, the Lord, full of compassion, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But he, he mentions that he will forgive iniquity. We're learning something about this God. Now remember, you and I are on this side of the cross and the resurrection, and so we are so used to thinking of God as a forgiver. This is the second book of the Bible, and what we've seen so far is Adam and Eve fail and get kicked out of the garden. We see a massive flood that wipes out the whole earth and a renewed covenant. We see a little bit of interaction with the patriarchs and then Egypt for for 400 years. It looks like a whole lot of judgment, and we're wondering, well, what is this God really like? Now, there's grace all through it, too, and that's a second study, but will he forgive people when they repent? Is he just going to wipe them out and start over with Moses? What will happen? That's the question being asked here. And we come to the very end where we learn that God responds to repentance. The people actually repent. And and later readers, when they're in exile in Babylon, they will read this and they will think, well, God dwelt in the tabernacle with the Israelites back in the Moses days. Here we are in Babylon for, again, apostasy, for our idolatry, Will God restore us? Will he receive our repentance? And we're starting to learn repentance is something that God responds to. In fact, I'm thinking about um, Psalm 51. David wrote Psalm 51 after he had committed adultery and murder with Bathsheba and then murdered his, her, her husband, Uriah. And when he finally comes to this place of repentance, he writes Psalm 51, a penitential psalm. And in there, he talks about how the Lord responds to repentance. He says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now, David learned that probably by reading Exodus and probably by his own experiences with God as God was revealing things about him progressively, chronologically through the scriptures. But back in chapters 35 to 40, the author is making a point here that the people do repent and God receives it and responds. In fact, one author pointed out that 18 times in chapter 
uh, 40, um, 35 through 40, 18 times, it says something like, Moses did according to the Lord's command. Moses did what the Lord commanded. The people do what God asks. They've repented, and now they're re- re- restored, and they're walking in God's way. They are bringing their gold and silver as offerings, not a tax. If you would like to give to the tabernacle, give. And the people are so generous at this point in repentance, Moses says, stop. I don't need any more gold and silver. We have too much. And people that are skilled with their hands, that can weave things, that are embroiderers, that are uh, woodworkers and metalsmiths, they're all coming joyfully now in repentance, bringing their gifts to build this tabernacle. Five chapters, 35 through 40, are all about that. Skillful artisans are serving eagerly. And one of the the commentators I wrote, um, Terrence Fretheim, said this. This is, and it's appropriate for us, it's so fitting. This is Israel in Advent mode. Really, they're preparing for the coming of the Lord. They're renewing their sense of repentance. Hopefully you saw my email about next week when Advent starts. It is a penitential season. It's a do-over season. It's an opportunity to say, I need to re-up my covenant with the Lord, my side of the deal. I need to, you know, put a little more effort in. I need to return from things that have, have been bad. I need to reset my habits. I need to return to the Lord who is always waiting and ready. It's so fitting for us on Christ the King Sunday. It's the last Sunday of the Christian calendar, and next week is New Year's. Interestingly enough, this chapter is like a new year. So Exodus 40 starts out, and it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, verse 1, then verse 2, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. The chapter is about a do-over, and it's a New Year's resolution kind of moment. You'll remember back in chapter 12, maybe, that when the Passover happened, God tells Moses, this is going to be a new way of accounting for time for you, a new calendar. This is so significant, the Passover is going to be the beginning of months for you. You're now going to start counting first month, second month, third month. They've been in the wilderness for one year, and they come to this moment. Now it's their New Year's Day, New Year's resolution. God is giving them a do-over, a restart. They are repenting for their idolatry, and we are learning something about God, that he receives our repentance, that he restores us, that he tarries with us a little longer, a holy God with sinful people. He's willing to be in their midst. It's a new year. It's a do-over. Now, the big change happens when the the tent switches around. Moses' auxiliary tent, I'll call it, outside of the camp Moses would go into it, and then the cloud comes to it, and then they interact. When they finally finished the tabernacle, it says, we just read it, it says, and the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter. Now something different has happened. God is showing that he has accepted their repentance, and he has brought his presence in such a powerful way, even Moses couldn't go into it. Now God is in the tent, and Moses is standing at the door wanting to come in. A switch has happened. God with us. Emmanuel, that's what that means. God with us. We have a God who responds to repentance and remains in the midst of people. Where is God? He's here. He's here with us. Throughout the scriptures, we see that all the way through. God is a God with his people. And we're left hanging once again, though. Well, what happens? We come to the end, and it says that that he would lead them and they'd move the tabernacle around, but they're not in the promised land. Moses still can't go into the, to the, the, the weight of God's glory. The Hebrew word for glory, kavod, it, it conveys weight. 
almost like a mass. Like you can't, it's, it, it like presses you down. It's too heavy. The weight of his glory is too heavy to go in. What will happen? Will they get into the promised land? What will happen when we get, as you go through the Bible, there's always like a hanging note left. What's coming? Like something more. And the scriptures are full of hope. There is a hope here now because God has responded to their repentance. The tabernacle that Solomon builds, God's glory comes in and fills it. But what happens to that tabernacle, or excuse me, the temple? When he dedicates the temple, the glory's there. What happens? Well, it gets destroyed. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, they get to see Jesus' glory, but then it's hidden away. And this is part of our experience. The psalmist, David, will write in Psalm 13, why have you hidden your face from me, God? Why? Where are you? And you and I know that experience. In the time when we feel like we most need God to come and, and, and minister to us and let us feel him, he seems like he's hiding. That's because there's more coming. He has more for us. We don't have the whole thing yet. There's a little bit more and a little bit more. But the way to pursue him, to seek him, is through repentance. So what did Jesus say when he came on the scene and began preaching? What was his first message, his public message? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's how he started his preaching. That was the invitation. Repent of your sin and and come and believe in me. So when we get to the very end of Revelation, chapter 21, the very last bit, we actually see a fulfillment. But keep in mind, this is us looking ahead. We see a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem coming down, and the point is that God will dwell with his people. That's what we're longing for. God responds to our repentance and is with us and has not left us. It's, it's not uh, inconsequential that Jesus, in his last commandment to go and make disciples the great commandment, the last thing he says, literally the last verse of Matthew's gospel is, and look, I'm with you to the end of the age. Even when you don't feel it, he is with you. His promise is to be with you. And when he breathes in that gospel reading that we read today and says, receive the Holy Spirit, he dwells with us. Whether we feel it or not, he is there. That's what we learn through the scriptures. And God is responding to our repentance and inviting us to repent and keep returning back to him. So what do we do with this, though? We're in this kind of in-between moment. You know, the, the tabernacle's done. Moses can't enter. What's going to happen? When the temple is finally built in the land, and it's just not quite enough. And then the prophets write about judgment against the nations, then judgment against Israel, and then some future hope. Not enough. Old Testament leaves us hanging. Elijah's coming back. What's that going to be like? Jesus shows up, and they think, are you going to restore the kingdom right now? Well, it's not for you to know the times or seasons. Not enough just yet. Like, we're waiting. We're waiting. We're waiting. We want a little more. We're, so what do we do in this waiting? Well, I was thinking about worship because, remember, Exodus is about worship, and, and Psalm 27.4 is a really good one to memorize. In fact, I wrote it on the, one of the columns out there on our new, our new uh, pavilion. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. What comes next? What's the one thing the psalmist is asking for? What's the, the one thing that you would want? One thing, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. That's the one thing the psalmist wants. Frankly, it's the one thing we need. As people whose hearts go astray with a temptation to idolatry, we need to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. We need to dwell in his temple. And I'll, I'll point out to you that worship, the central thing of Exodus, 
was very exacting on how the tabernacle would be built and where things go, and everything was a physical manifestation of a spiritual reality, which is kind of our definition of a sacrament, actually. The, the lampstand was about the Holy Spirit's presence shining and bringing light. The, the table of the bread of presence was about God being there, dining with them. The altar of incense, the prayers going up. The Ark of the Covenant was about the, the, the relational covenant that God has made with man. Everything had a symbolic meaning. Christian worship is no different. Pay attention to, I mean, there's different expressions and different things, but notice some things about this space you're physically in. What are the symbols you're looking at? What do they convey? Do you know what a sanctuary is technically in church architecture? The sanctuary is from this rail around the table. Look at the fact that the highest thing is the cross, center high, where people under the cross. We make the sign of the cross. We follow a cross in and out. The cross is our central thing. Word and sacrament on the same level. How are you nourished in worship? How do you gaze upon the Lord? How do you inquire in his temple? We hear from his word, we break bread and receive the sacrament. Symbolically, you come forward to receive from the Lord. It's a drawing near. It's a type of repentance. There's all sorts of stuff. The baptismal font is kept at the door back there because you enter through the first sacrament and come to his table. It's a reminder of belonging. By coming into the church, into the physical house of God, we are tasting what is to come. We are participating in what is and is to come. Worship is formative. It's important for us. It reminds us of things. It helps us see things that we constantly are forgetting. And so I know we have online church now as we have to, and that is a stopgap for people that can't be here or people that are sick, but it's no substitute for being in the Lord's house. You can't experience these things the same. So one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So as we come into this end of the year and into the change of seasons, maybe memorize Psalm 27, verse 4. Make it, make it your psalm. Recognize that the beauty of the Lord and his glory is what we need. And when we repent, he restores us. We learn from this text and others that God responds to repentance. So repent of your sin and come into his presence. Seek God's glory in Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for the way that you respond to our repentance. Thank you that you just simply keep bringing us back. Lord, we need your spirit to help us worship. We need to feel you and not just know in our heads about you. Lord, would you come and manifest your presence in our lives, at least to the level we can bear? We love you, Lord, and we worship you as our God and King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.